Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the January Outlook on the Economy and Currencies with Axel Merck Conference Call. All lines have been placed on a listen-only mode, and the floor will be open for questions and comments following the presentation. If you should require assistance throughout the conference, please press star zero. At this time, it is my pleasure to turn the floor over to your host, Kristen Johansson. Ma'am, the floor is yours. Thank you, and welcome everyone to the Merck Quarterly Webinar. As part of the dial-in instructions, we provided a link to a visual aid to follow this presentation. Please read the disclosure on the website with regards to the Merck Mutual Funds. Please also note important disclosure regarding the fund's performance on the second slide. Today on the call, we have Axel Merck, Merck's President and Chief Investment Officer. Shortly, I will turn the floor over to Axel, who will give you an update on the economy and the dollar, as well as the funds. Afterward, the floor will then be open for questions. At that time, you will be given instructions on how to answer questions, um, excuse me, on how to ask questions. We will wrap up the call no later than 2 p.m. Pacific time. I'll now turn the floor over to Axel Merck. Axel? Thank you, Kristen, and welcome, everybody. Also in our conference room is Kieran Osborne, the co-portfolio manager of the Merck Absolute Return Currency Fund. And uh, first of all, I'm excited that we have a record attendance in this webinar. It might as well be a sign of the, the economy and the currencies, um, at least as much as, as maybe the interest in, in what we do. Um, I will first talk about the economy briefly, then the impact on currencies, and then proceed to talk about um, special highlights that's, that are happening with regard to our mutual funds before I'll um, return the, the call over to, to Kristen to take your questions. Um, on the economy, many of you are familiar with, with what we do, but just very briefly um, as the backdrop to our thinking and on what is happening here and what, um, what forces are at play. Um, we are coming off what had been a major credit expansion, but differently from how many portray it um, in, in the rest in, 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 the, in the economic commentators and, and, and analysts, um, we saw that expansion as one that originated um, at the monetary level from the Federal Reserve but then moved over to the private sector. Um, people took money out of their homes, used their homes as ATMs machines, um, banks used off-balance sheet vehicles, hedge funds geared themselves up more. The reason why that is relevant is it's not just to explain that the credit expansion continued after the Federal Reserve started raising interest rates in 2004. But because the credit expansion had moved to the private sector, it is now the private sector that's been trying to to contract. Um, we've had a major credit contraction in force, and opposing that force are the government forces. The government is trying to oppose the the private sector force, the market force of a credit expansion. And when you have these dynamics battling out, then in some periods people think that the market forces are taking over, that we'll get a contraction. Some periods we think that the government forces, the reflationary efforts, the monetary and fiscal stimuli are winning out. Um, the main thing to take from that is that when the government is trying to fi uh, fight market forces, is that those battles are extremely inefficient and, ineff and, and at times ineffective. Um, it takes a lot of money to fight the market if it will succeed at all. And of course, even if it doesn't succeed, a lot of damage can be created in the process, in particular damage to, to purchasing uh, power of the currency. Um, let's briefly talk about the, the ineffectiveness of the stimulus. Uh, many people have broadly discuss the ineffectiveness of a cash for clunkers program, that of the ill design of some of the government stimuli. Um, added to that, maybe just today's news about potentially new regulation in the banking sector. Um, with regard 
without judging whether that's appropriate or inappropriate, the type of regulation that's being proposed, it's the uncertainty in the market. Without clarity in the market, um, all the money that's in the pipeline is less effective because the folks who are supposed to be lending are uncertain. They don't know how to proceed because they don't know what the rules will be. But we have also been arguing that the monetary stimulus is extremely ineffective, in particular that when the Federal Reserve is, for example, providing commercial paper um, to a General Electric, no private sector participant can compete with that. So the Federal Reserve has been replacing rather than encouraging private sector um, activity. Now, when the Federal Reserve takes it a step further and buys, for example, mortgage-backed securities or government bonds, um, we are all excited about the low interest rates, but the Federal Reserve is signaling very clearly that these securities are now intentionally overpriced, so why would a private sector participant um, want to have them? And in particular, they may want to move uh, their money abroad because there the prices may be less manipulated. Now, taking a closer look at what's happening right now on the monetary side, um, we've talked a lot about how the Federal Reserve has been printing money, quote-unquote printing, blowing up the balance sheet. The size of the Federal Reserve balance sheet is, can be thought of as the money that's been printed. Of course, it's not been physically printed money, but it's um, money that's been pushed into the system, money that banks then use to, to lend out more, and theoretically they can um, lend a high multiple of that. Many banks haven't done that because they have had their own issues, have been reluctant to lend it. But um, usually um, Fed activity, um, traditionally anyway, takes about um, six to nine months, sometimes even longer, to make it through the system. And while the Fed balance sheet um, doubled approximately in, between the fall of 2008 and then the end of 2008, it was fairly stagnant for the following six months. A lot of talk was there about the Federal Reserve printing more money, but while they were printing new money, some of the emergency programs of late of 2008 were running out. So in the first half of 2009, um, there wasn't much additional money printing. It's really then that the mortgage-backed security program kicked in and additional stimulus was added to the system. And the reason why those are dynamics that have happened at the Federal Reserve is because the Federal Reserve usually wants to see how effective its actions are. They, they do something, they tighten or ease monetary policy, and then they wait a few months to see what's playing out. And it's the same thing that we're seeing now. The Federal Reserve is continuing to blow up its balance sheet. Indeed, they are going to be at over $2.5 by the end of this quarter. And um, some people have said that the Federal Reserve is, is tightening because they're phasing out the purchases. Well, that is incorrect. They're not tightening. They're just reducing the rate at which they're buying securities at the rate at which they're blowing up their balance sheet. And then, quite likely, they will want to wait to see what is happening. Now, the challenge in that is that we have been arguing that a lot of this stimulus is fizzling out, that the, these are not effective programs, neither at the Federal Reserve side nor at, at, the, at the fiscal side. And so the Federal Reserve will be very surprised to see um, that the economic recovery may not be as strong as, as, as they are expecting. The big theme in 2010, we believe, is one of access to credit. If you have pristine credit, then you can leverage yourself up as if it was 2006 or um, whichever way you like because all there was abundant money around. But if you don't have pristine credit, then you have a big challenge. And we see that in some high-profile cases internationally. We see that in Dubai. We see that in Greece. We see that in Ireland. But we also see it in commercial paper in the U.S. and other private sector participants. 
One of the reasons why we are not very optimistic on the equity markets is that many corporations depend on cheap financing to finance their operations, and cheap credit is simply not available unless you are have a very close relationship with the Federal Reserve or have otherwise very cheap access to credit. And so the business model of many corporations may be broken. Now, the other fear that we have and others have is that inflation um, might come out and, and cause a more serious problem. And there, one has to take into account a couple of things. One is that many economists say, well, we cannot have inflation because of the output gap, because of the slack economy, because there is no wage pressure. How can you have inflation without there being wage inflation? And uh, while we sympathize with that view and say that, well, um, it's more difficult for inflation to come, we don't rule out that inflation can come in. Um, first of all, you can get inflation with, through the higher cost of imports. Um, the, the Chinese, for example, have significant inflation pro, um, challenges right now because their stimulus is actually working. Um, well, if they have to rise prices, for example, through a stronger currency, that is something that will be exported to the U.S. The Federal Reserve thinks that exporters will absorb those higher costs of exporting. We are far more skeptical on that. We saw in the spring of 2008 in particular that import prices skyrocketed. Much of it was due to commodity prices, but by far not everything. There comes a point where foreign exporters can no longer absorb the higher cost of business, of doing business, and they have to raise prices, and we simply have to absorb those prices. But maybe more importantly, we believe, and some at the Federal Reserve, but certainly not the majority view, agrees with that, um, inflation is foremost a function of inflation expectations. If people believe that there will be inflation in the future, then they will push for higher prices. They will try to pass on the higher cost of doing business, and people may ask for higher wages. Now, ironically, inflation expectations are mostly a function of a trust in the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve is ultimately in charge of that because they can control things like money supply and credit. Um, not in, on, on a fine scale, but on a grand scheme of things, they can control those things. And what the Federal Reserve has been doing is they have been staking their credibility on the fact that they will manage us through this crisis and through the recovery. And as long as you trust the Federal Reserve, everything will be fine. One of the challenges is that inflation is starting to creep into the indicators that the Federal Reserve is watching. In particular, it is creeping into something like the, the spreads from of the, the tips, the, treasure, the inflation protected treasury securities versus the, the corresponding bonds, especially if one looks at that um, on, on a forward basis on what type of, what are the inflation expectations in a couple of years from now um, going forward a couple of years. Um, the Federal Reserve likes to look at inflation from that point of view because that way you get rid of any, any near-term fluctuations based on commodity prices or or other abnormalities. And those sort of indicators have been poking through the 2% level that's traditionally considered the inflation target or considered the target that Ben Bernanke, the Fed chairman, um, may be looking at. Um, one reason why we believe that the, um, the traditional economists and the, uh, many at the Fed um, Open Market Committee are, are not accurate um, with their lack of concern of inflation is that we're changing the world we're in. It used to be for many decades now that the U.S. had been the major driver of growth in the world. And while the U.S., of course, continues to be very important, um, we are entering a world where China is far more important, where the rest of the world 
is becoming um, very important as well. And we can have growth in other parts of the world uh, pushing up commodity prices, pushing up other prices without having the U.S. be in a strong recovery. Um, it is perfectly possible that uh, if, if you are if you are um, a producer of steel, you don't care who is buying your steel um, as long as they're paying for it. And if the Chinese have a, have a boom, well, they will be pushing up the prices. And other participants in the world, including Americans, will have to absorb those. And so it's a... It's an environment where we believe that um, the, the, the traditional regression models that the staffers at the Federal Reserve may be employing um, uh, may need to have some revisions and people might be caught off guard. Um, taking it a step further, we believe that the, the Federal Reserve wants to have a weaker dollar, wants to have inflation. Um, Bernanke has many times mentioned how going off the gold standard during the Great Depression was a very important tool because it allowed the price level to move higher. Federal Reserve is acting on the talk by buying mortgage-backed securities, by buying government bonds to push folks abroad. They're hoping that with the stimulus that they have given, enough will be done and everything will be fine. Indeed, um, I had a chat with the head of macroeconomic advisors, um, Lawrence Meyer, a couple of days ago, and, and he said that uh, the Federal Reserve um, likely should be pushing for 5% growth for five years down the road. Um, because there's trust in the Federal Reserve, um, we will not get inflation in the process, but we need to have that sort of growth to reduce the unemployment. Um, I don't buy that story because if indeed we were able to engineer such a growth scenario, which I highly doubt, uh, we would be hit left and right with imported inflation from Asia in particular because if we get 5% growth for five years, um, if that's at all achievable, then uh, we will have a serious issue with inflation. Now, um, maybe another perspective on that. One of the reasons why I am very concerned about the stat state we're in right now is because we haven't allowed the uh, market forces to play out, we have a very unstable recovery. The Fed is boxed into a corner, and as a result, um, the Federal Reserve wouldn't be able to tighten substantially. Um, the, the reason is that because we still have housing prices that, in our view, are too high, um, and the prices are held up artificially with low interest rates, if we were to tighten, we'd plunge right back down. Um, and so in that sort of environment, the Federal Reserve is unable to be able to tighten. Now, that won't stop necessarily the market from thinking that we're going into a tightening mode, that the Federal Reserve's next step might be tightening rather than easing, that China might not now be tightening rather than easing, um, that in other parts of the world, Australia has already raised rates, Norway has raised rates, and, and so it doesn't change possibly the market perception. What we believe is that as people realize that this growth is not happening as expected, that we will see um, substantially more um, stimulus coming. Now, in the U.S., one of the challenges is that um, with the one seat lost in, in the Senate, for example, um, the current administration is likely to be less effective. Um, that might mean that they can get fewer spending programs done. Um, on the flip side, of course, is that um, whereas recent programs um, in the administration have been squarely aimed on Wall Street and the perception may have been that Wall Street may have been bailed out, um, maybe administration is going to come up with a program to send a check of $1,000 to everybody in the U.S. And that is the type of program that Republicans might have a difficult time objecting to. And so um, just because the supermajority has been lost in the Senate um, is no guarantee that the spending will abate. Um, as the economy is not gaining the sort of traction that people expect, as unemployment is not falling um, as people expect, um, 
don't expect that um, the fiscal side will rest idle. On the monetary side, we expect the Federal Reserve will be there to, to print plenty of money if indeed they believe that the economy is slowing down um, because they don't think that their, their programs are too inflationary. Now, when you have all that, when you have ineffective money printing, it flows to the places um, where you see the most monetary sensitivity. It flows um, to things like precious metals and commodity currencies like the Australian dollar. Um, obviously, during periods as we have right now where the, um, where the credit contraction force is taking over and people think that we haven't printed enough money, we have a reversal of some of those trends. We have been arguing that this pendulum as it swings back and forth um, may swing to the U.S. less every single time um, because um, the U.S. has deteriorated its balance sheet, um, not just the Fed, but also on the federal government side, and other places in the world have put in safeguards in place to um, to make their currencies appear safer. Now, um, in the interest of time, let me move quickly to a couple of currencies before I move to mutual funds. Um, I published a piece on the yen um, recently where I said that the yen might be on a, on a kamikaze flight and might the Japanese might be willing to destroy the currency in the medium term. Um, and that's on the backdrop of a stronger yen that we've seen since, um, since about the summer of 2007. And if you put that into context of what I, I, I explained just before, um, in that period, the Japanese government was extremely ineffective. Um, they've gone through numerous finance ministers, um, six finance ministers since the summer of 08. Um, the government um, resigned in August 2007. We've had changes in prime ministers, uh, and most recently we had another new finance minister. Well, what I've been arguing just recently is that with the appointment of the latest finance minister, some of that uncertainty may be over, and the Japanese government might focus again on what they're interested in, which is growth, um, which is going to be achieved um, through a weaker currency, through more intervention of bank by at the Bank of Japan. So basically, the reason why the yen was strong in the intermediate period is because the market forces were allowed to play out because we had a credit contraction with saving increase, savings increased. And in that context, I'd like to point out that um, not everybody um, believes that you need to have a strong currency and need to have growth to support a strong currency. Um, when you have a current account deficit, when you need to attract money from abroad, you need to have growth to support your currency. But the Japanese in particular have been proof that that is not necessarily the case. The same applies to the Eurozone. The European economy is roughly in balance. As a result, the Europeans are not dependent on inflows from abroad to support the currency. That means when economic growth in the Eurozone is lacking, that can happen on the backdrop of increased consumer savings. That can happen um, on the backdrop of a stronger currency. Indeed, when you look at what Bernanke is saying about weakening the currency to to induce growth, when you don't do that, you will end up with lackluster economic growth, um, but you can have a strong currency um, on top of that. And uh, that coincidentally um, comes out together with some economic news in, in the Eurozone that, that haven't been so strong. Um, now, a few people have issued concerns about uh, what's happening in Greece, what's happening in Ireland. Is that going to affect the euro? Um, on the one hand, one can argue that um, Greece, for example, only has 2.5% of the GDP of the eurozone. Um, Ireland is also small. But on the other hand, some have argued that can have a spillover effect in confidence. Now, I'd like to draw some parallels to 
um, what happened during the debate of adopting a European constitution. And some may recall that um, when the, the vote within Europe to adopt the European constitution failed, um, the euro took a little bit of a hit. We came out positively and said, well, the good news is that the bureaucrats in Brussels are forced to communicate with our citizens and explain what they want to do. Um, similarly, in the current environment, and subsequently in, in the coming months, the euro strengthened again. Similarly, with regard to, the, uh, to Greece, um, we are actually quite happy that the yield spreads are increasing within Europe, that the weaker countries have to pay a higher premium. In the U.S., California pays a higher rate on its debt than some other states that, that are more prudent with their finances. The same must happen in Europe as well um, because you need to be rewarded for good policy and punished for bad policy. You cannot have all that weight on the, on the European Central Bank. Um, and the, the question is, of course, how will this play out? Will there be a crisis, a currency crisis in the process? We don't think so, but at the same time, um, with regard to the Eurozone in general, that doesn't mean there won't be a crisis for, for Greece per se. Um, we do believe that the, the euro itself um, will come out intact, will come out strong on the backdrop of weaker economic growth, on the backdrop of a higher cost of borrowing for everybody. But that's not just the issues that Greece has. That's a global problem as everybody in the world sovereign um, and private sector areas want to raise more debt, and everybody is coming to the market this year. And all, not only that, many governments want to extend the duration of the debt, going to issue more longer-term debt, causing another dampener on economic growth, being a dampener um, on anybody who holds um, fixed-income um, funds with, with longer durations. So by all means, this is going to be a period where um, these types of market forces are going to be an impediment to growth. Um, but we don't believe that ultimately the U.S. dollar will be the winner in that, um, much because we believe the Federal Reserve will come to the rescue again and, and print more money and will do so more efficiently than, than other regions will do. Briefly touching on other regions, um, obviously if one doesn't like to have the problems on the Eurozone, um, Norway is a good place to look at. And um, we just uh, started to increase our holdings in the Swiss franc again. Um, partially, the, the Swiss, uh, we've been reluctant on in recent months because of the intervention the Swiss National Bank has done to try to weaken the, um, the Swiss franc with regard uh, relative to the euro. Um, we believe that ultimately the Swiss will do more, more talking than acting, different from the, the Japanese that may ultimately may do more talking and more acting than, than talking. Um, briefly, other places in the world, Australia, there's some news out into Australia today that they may start increasing the taxes um, on mining companies, on things that are being mined, following a global trend. Australia had been one of the places that hadn't done that. Everybody likes to have a bigger chunk of that pie. Um, that is not very good news uh, from that part of the world. It's, it's pursuing a, a global trend of higher taxation. The neighbor, New Zealand, we're quite excited about. Um, there is, again, word out from New Zealand that they want to make their country a more attractive place to invest in, take this as an opportunity, um, the current crisis, to attract more money from abroad, and um, folks in New Zealand might be quite successful in that. Over to Canada, um, the Canadians continue to be reluctant on raising rates, but overall Canada appears fairly healthy. And maybe moving back to China, um, there's news out um, couple the last couple of days about the Chinese tightening the lend lending standards at banks. Um, that seems to have become an annual theme, and people have a short memory in that. In, in China, remember, we do not have a floating currency, um, at least not a free-floating one, um, that would be 
able to to absorb um, a, a growing economy, um, act as a buffer. Um, the tightening that happens there goes through decree um, that banks simply are not allowed to lend more. And because that's been happening every year, um, in January every year, um, the banks are trying to lend as much as possible, or vice versa, corporations try to get as much credit as possible because they know that later in the year the government might come in and restrain that. And um, at the same time, it was clearly said that lending will not stop, but it will only be restricted for, for banks that are not living up to, to the sort of standards that, that are expected of them. Um, and so I would not expect the Chinese um, tightening to be too tight. Having said that, the inflationary pressures are increasing visibly in China, and there are now more voices out. We have been calling for that for, for a year and a half now, that the Chinese should allow the currency to, to move higher um, because that is the most effective way to, to rein in inflation. Um, the rest of Asia, um, we have uh, a mixed picture. We continue to, to favor the, the currencies of countries um, that are at what we call is the higher end of the value chain where um, they have more pricing power in an environment where we don't see the sort of consumer recovery that um, one would like um, to see. And the, the countries at the lower end of the value chain, like the Philippines and Vietnam, are going to struggle um, and might only be able to compete on price, thereby engaging in competitive devaluation.